is Radio Olin, KROJ 101.5 FM on your radio dial, coming to you live from our studios at Pueblo y Salud in the city of San Fernando. This is Silverio Pelayo and... This is Cynthia Alvarez. Another uh, coming to you again for another um, show here. Um, so I know Cynthia has been preparing uh, some topics for today's episode. You want to touch on some of that, Cynthia? Yeah, I'm excited. It's my first year. Um, So, I mean, I guess it all started earlier this week uh, when the quote from Silvia Mendes's mom came up. And the quote was, Si la causa es justa, los demás te siguen. Um, so I've been thinking about it for a couple days. And then I realized that a lot of people don't know who the Mendes family is and how important they were, not only to California law, but just to the nation as well. Um, and it got me thinking about other cases that like really don't hear about in general, Um, even though they played a key role in our lives. And they still do. And this is... Uh... Uh, the Mendez family is uh, contributed with um, this is in relation to the desegregation of schools. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Um, so most importantly, the LA Times did like a little like article on her, um, on Silvia Mendez and her family back in 2016. So that's kind of where you got a lot of this information. Um, so to start off, Silvia Mendez, um, she was the daughter of Gonzalo Mendez and Felicitas Mendez. They um, had three kids, including Silvia. So it was Silvia, Gonzalo Jr., and then Jeronimo Mendez. Um, so I guess how it originally started is back in the 40s her family moved to the city of Westminster here in California um, and basically they wanted to go to school certain school but um, school district wouldn't allow it just really quick stats on Westminster um, Westminster right now is located approximately 54 miles from the city of San Fernando and it's about 30 miles from downtown Los Angeles um, according to the census in 2018 um, they estimated the population to be at 90,900 938 people with about 23.7% being or identifying as Hispanic and Latino. Um, I'm terrible at math. So I googled what was the 23.7% of 90,938 and Google said it's approximately 21,552 people. So just to give you a little bit of perspective on that. Um, however, that wasn't always the case. Westminster was actually a small farming community um, back in the 40s. Um, most of the men and women working in those fields were also um, were first and second generation immigrants from Mexico who were um, employed by white ranchers. They um, grew citrus groves, had a citrus grove, sorry, lima bean fields and sugar beets. Um, this is also from tolerance.org. It's teaching tolerance. Uh, is Their mission is to help teachers and schools educate youth to become active participants in the community. So this is where we're also getting with it. Um, a lot of the California towns at the time had two separate worlds, including Westminster, one Anglo and one Mexican. Um, Anglo growers, like the story of all time, they loved the Chicano workers and their fields during the times of economic prosperity. But then when it came to mainstream society they kind of shut them out um and we know of course this isn't just with the Mexican population this has been throughout history um with other groups as well um most of the people of Mexican ancestry lived in colonias at the time and they were um, segregated residential communities so um they were on alongside the Anglo neighborhoods as well um the housing of course was substandard they had inadequate plumbing and they often had no heating um, the roads in those colonias were usually um, unpaved and dusty. Um, at the time, Westminster's white school was 17th Street, and the quote-unquote Mexican school was uh, Hoover School. That was at the heart of one of the colonias, and that's where many of the children of the Mexican field laborers ended. Um, and it was a small building, and they actually, the Mexican school, the Hoover School, was um, right next to a cow pasture. And according to Silvia, they also had like an electric fence to keep the kids from going out into the um, cow pasture. She saw one of her friends like, electrocuted, basically. I'm um, trying to like touch it. Um, the Westminster School District wasn't the only one discriminating against Chicano students at the time. Um, around that time, more than 80 
80% of school districts in the state of California with large um, Mexican populations did practice segregation as well. Um, this also happened not only just in California, but also across Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Which I think it's interesting because it's mostly the southwestern states where you have a huge um, population of Mexican immigrants. Um, schools differed a lot, really. They would the Mexican schools would employ less experienced teachers, and they also were um, housed in rundown buildings. The Chicano children they also got like second down and hand me down books and equipment compared to their white peers, and they were taught in crowded classrooms. Um, the biggest biggest difference between them was the curriculum. Anglo schools focused on um, academic courses such as geometry and biology, um, where Mexican schools focused on teaching uh, more of a trait. So they taught boys industrial skills and they taught girls like sewing. Um, a lot of the Anglo educators didn't expect Chicano students to want to advance beyond the eighth grade. So real quick, going back to the Silvia Mendez case, now that we have a sub background. So Silvia Mendez, uh, her family moved to the city of Westminster. Um, she, it was not only just her family, her, her media family, like her mom and her dad. She also moved there with um, her aunt. Her aunt went to go enroll the students, which is her kids, and then also um, Mendez's cousins. Um, they had a French last name, Vidauri. It's V-I-D-A-U-R-R-I. So they moved in, in Westminster in 1944, but they leased a farm owned by a Japanese-American family. Um, the Japanese-American family didn't live there anymore after they had been put in an internment camp during World War II. So the Mendez children attempted to enroll at that quote-unquote white school, which was a 17th Street school. They were turned away. Um, but at the same time, the aunt took their cousins at the graduaries, uh, the and they were accepted into the school. Of course, the aunt was very angry, um, and she did not end up registering her kids there either because she was disturbed that they would take her kids, but they wouldn't take her brother. Um, so of course, Sylvia's dad got involved, but he just thought it was just a simple mistake. So he himself had attended the 17th Street School as a child, so he thought it's just a mistake. You know, I'm just gonna go talk to the higher ups and let's see what happens. Um, he went and he did talk to the principal, and he's quote the principal was quoted as saying, "I'm sorry, Mr. Mendez, we don't have Mexicans here." Um, so then, of course, the dad got upset, went to the superintendent of schools for the Orange County, and they said that the cities, four cities including Garden Grove, Santa Ana, Orange, and Westminster, had built two schools, and specifically for Mexicans and they had to go to the school and at the superintendent he said that he did not have the power to change it only the cities could do that so of course um Sylvia described the Mexican school that she and her siblings were forced to attend to as terrible um it was two wooden shacks that was basically their school again they were um separated from a neighboring cow pasture with an electric fence um and so I think what kind of shocked her a little bit the most was the school bus would pick her up it would drop her off in front of the white school but then her and her siblings would have to walk down the Mexican school. um so at the beginning of this article it states that Sylvia just saw her parents were fighting just for the right for their kids to play at the playground. Because of course, in elementary school, she doesn't get the gravity of everything at all. Um, as we know now, it's, it was way more important than actually um, fight for this. Um, so then, yeah, so she attended that Mexican school, unfortunately, and she said that she just dreamt about going to that beautiful school because it had a luscious um, grass area and of course that playground that she. Um, at first, the parents didn't know what to do, but they knew they had to do something. So then it was Gonzalo, the dad, that read about another. Um, case in Riverside, which I didn't know about either. Um, and it was a successful desegregation case that came before this one. And it challenged the rules barring Mexicans from public parks. So again, that goes back to one of the cases that you really don't know about or hear about until you dive deep into this. Um, like, I know I was never taught about the Mendez case in any school growing up, either through elementary, uh, junior high, or high school. I mean, of course, not even the Riverside. It wasn't until this article um, that I found out about this case or this even thing. Because um, usually when you 
think about segregation, you think about the um, African-American community being separated from the white community, but you never think about how it also impacted other um, cultures and identities. Um, and of course, it's what we're going to talk about in a bit. Um, so yeah, so Gonzalo was pretty angry over that. We discovered the Riverside case. So what he decided to do is he hired David Marcus. He was the Jewish-American civil rights attorney who had actually fought the Riverside case and won. But then Marcus said, you know what, let's not just fight for your kids, let's do it for all the children. So Gonzalo agreed and they drove around Orange County looking for other people to join them in the class action lawsuit. And finally, more people got involved, including um, Lorenzo Ramirez from Orange, Palomino from Garden Grove, and William Guzman and Thomas Estrada from Santa Ana. And now you have like a whole collective of parents actually coming together and deciding that they need to do something to change the phrase. So the case that went against the uh, Westminster School District um, argued that the four segregated school districts violated the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection, attracted attention, and it attracted attention outside of Orange, um, including uh, Thurgood Marshall, who was at the time the chief counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational. He got involved and he wrote an amicus brief in support of Mendes, which is like a letter of support, um, and it just includes more facts to send to the court. Other uh, people got involved in other organizations, such as the Japanese American Citizens League, the League of United uh, Latin American Citizens, the American Jewish Congress, and the American Civil Liberties Union, which we all know right now as the ACLU as the president. Um, in 1946, they actually won, but the um, ingrained attitudes of integrating would actually be a whole other. Thing. So I think that's enough for right now. We'll take a break, listen to some music, and then we'll come back in. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, so much there to unpack. But yeah, let's uh, go ahead and listen to some music or this interesting group that I was telling you about earlier. It's called uh, Buyu Check, and I think I came across them. It might have been on um, um, online somewhere. And uh, interesting story is uh, the singer is a um, an abuela, and uh, her dream was always to be a musician, and it didn't happen. And now at her um, at uh, at this moment in her life, she recorded an album along with her grandson, and I guess she's really well known. So um, it, I believe this is a Norteño music, and the album is Las Canciones de la Abuela. So I hope y'all uh, dig this particular or this selection of, uh, of music. Estoy para complacer 
You're listening to Puebla y Salud Platicando y Mejorando, an inspiring program that will promote the health and well-being of our community through 
intellectual, physical, economical, political, and spiritual discussions. Stimulating discussions and listening pleasures will be enjoyed with experts and leaders in health, culture, music, art, and politics. This is Silverio Pelayo. And this is so, um, again, we were talking about the Mendes case where we had left off was Mendes case um, and through the court and the Mendes family had won their lawsuit and the district. Um, but of course, winning the lawsuit was going to be completely not changing added people or struggling through that. Okay. So schools in Orange County did begin to desegregate right away. However, in Westminster where Sylvia was attending schools, they still kept the Mexican school and the white school, but the way they integrated was by placing all of the older children in the Mexican school and the younger children in the white school. Um, and as we had spoken about there was a major difference between both of them not just um, education wise and like curriculum wise but also the way the schools were built one was a nice beautiful campus the other one was not a campus. so Sylvia said that according to her the white people got so upset their children that their children had to go to a terrible school they immediately went to superintendent and they had it closed down um, some schools some other schools in that district didn't integrate at all eventually the family did move back to Santa Ana and the schools there did not integrate until the appeal of the case was complete other schools continued to use IQ testing as a way to justify keeping Mexican American students separate. Um, Gonzalo, which is Silvia's dad, um, pushed back against that ruling, so he went to the superintendent, and he said he didn't care what the superintendent said, he was still going to take his kids to the quote, white school. So she successfully enrolled at the white school in Santa Ana, but it wasn't an easy transition. Um, according to her, she said that a little white boy came up to her and told her, you're a Mexican, what are you doing here? Don't you know that Mexicans don't belong? Um, so that day she, was, she spent all day crying, she told her mom that she didn't want to go to that white school anymore her mother told her listen we were in court every day don't you know what we were fighting for we weren't fighting for you to go to that beautiful school we were fighting you because we were fighting because you're equal to that white boy this is when Celia finally understood that her parents weren't just fighting for her to be able to play in that nice playground instead of in the pasture but they were actually fighting for her to understand and for the courts to rule that um a little Latina was equivalent and had the same rights as a white boy, um, who went to executive um finally a year later the ruling was up held in federal court and within months California governor Earl Warren he officially signed legislation to desegregate schools and it made California the first state in the country to achieve um, it would have na nationwide ramifications of course so after they closely followed the case the NAACP which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People um, used much of the same legal reasoning um, in later in 1954 during Brown versus Board of Education um, and if you don't know what that is that's a case that declared state laws established separate public schools um, for black and white students was unconstitutional. Again, Thurgood Marshall comes up from the NAAC. He argued before the Supreme Court uh, for the Brown versus Board of Education. And interestingly enough, it was the same key players, again, Thurgood Marshall from NAACP, and now Earl Warren was now Chief Justice at the Supreme Court, and he's the one that um, signed legislation to desegregate schools in California. He wrote the unanimous decision that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. So after all of this um, came or happened, the Mendez family did kind of go back to normal as you could say Silvia did graduate from Santana High School which she later went on to Santana College she worked as a registered nurse for 33 years um, I don't think she ever really thought about how Mendez versus Westminster impacted her until decades later when her dad eventually passed and her mom became ill um, and it was her mom that was pushing for her to keep talking about this bring it up her mom thought this was the history of the United States and of California and he had, she encouraged her to keep talking about the case uh, she was kind of, or Silvia was kind of reluctant at first but then she started um, doing a uh, nationwide talk an effort to educate the public about her parents' activism. Finally, um, in 1998, unfortunately, Felicita did die. Um, but that was barely when the case was barely starting to get recognition. So, in order to in, in order to honor the family, Santa Ana did name a high school in the year 2000 after the family, and they named it the Gonzalo and Felicita.
Felicitas Mendes from Intermediate. Uh, there was later uh, in 2002 a documentary produced by Andrew Robbie, and she's in um, Proust Edward Award and it's titled Mendes, the Westminster for All the Children. Um, interestingly enough, also she was inspired by this is uh, Sandra was also a Westie. Two years later, so this would be around 2004, uh, then President George W. Bush invited the Mendes family to the White House for Hispanic Heritage Month as well. And then in 2007, the U.S. Postal Service um, issued a stamp commemorating these. Um, and then in 2011, President then President Obama was awarded Sylvia with the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom. And she got it, she said she was crying, and she was finally thinking um, of mother and dad, and they were finally getting the things that they deserved. He thought of the Presidential Medal of Freedom as belonging to them, not hers, because they were the ones that stood up against establishment in order for their kids and other children across the state to have the same rights. Um, she retired from being a nurse, and now she does do educational programs for the youth across the country to continue to advocate for this. Um, but in doing so and traveling across the state, she has gone to many schools and many school districts, and she still sees that the struggle for educational equity is not just in the past. Um, it's quoted as saying, Ronan Mendez taught segregation by law. Now we have what's called de facto segregation caused by poverty. So she hopes that teaching the public about family's legal victory will start change, particularly for Latinos. Um, I think this is important because, again, we always hear about representative education, but I never heard about Mendez. Uh, so I never really thought about anyone that's fighting for the Latino community as much. Um, and I think it really, really didn't gain notoriety until way later, until her mom passed 98 years after the case came in play. Yeah, it's interesting that um, you brought this particular topic up last night. Um, my wife and I were watching this show on Netflix. I forgot what it's called, but it's there are really short episodes on different interesting topics. And one of them um, was on redlining. Um, so the practice of, of um, basically um, space of racializing space, right? As it comes to like the housing market. So the intentional, um, um, I guess, um, literally redlining where in this case, um, black folks could live, um, and where they couldn't. Um, and, um, so it, it's, it's another, um, you know, it's related again to racism and, and the long history of, of racism in this particular country. Um, and the practices that, um, essentially the, the premise or the, you know, the premise of the episode was uh, the wealth gap mm -hmm. uh, among white folk and black folk and the of course the ties to uh, you know slavery and then and then after the the formal ending of slavery the um uh discrimination right and like the explicit discriminatory practices of, of um, government and uh, in this particular case um uh hud i believe it is or that the housing department um in the in the government um but yeah i mean there's so much to really kind of discuss when it comes to uh race and racism and um, the school is another or the this particular topic is another another um area where we can kind of see that happening as you mentioned right with the mm -hmm. mendez family and um and as you said de facto i was thinking while you were talking i was thinking about how um although a lot has changed since then a lot is still kind of we still see a lot of the same mm -hmm. problems right um and then i'm also sitting here and i hope it's okay to to mention to folks um or you said you this kind of just came up right um, based off of a particular quote that you had come across this particular topic. Yes, uh, so we are, if we'll know out there, Pueblo Salud, um, there is this location where Susan Chavez Committee meets, um, and a quote came up during um, a meeting this week, so I just thought it was really interesting. Um, we knew the quote came from somewhere, and unfortunately it took us a while to find out where it came from. We knew it was a quote from someone, and someone brought it up, and a quick Google search came up, and then Julia Mendes came up, and then again, I hadn't thought about that in like at least a year or so. But I was thinking about how it's almost like we are, we know we're taught in like elementary school, junior high school, we're taught mostly like the Anglo history 
um and especially coming from not a dominantly hispanic area or growing up there i was never, never really not um, that side so i was always not a kind of hide away from that so of course even more so i only learned of education i only learned or i was only taught basically that um columbus was a great guy for discovering america which of course going later through college and stuff you learn about colonialism imperialism um, and mass genocide of um, native americans over there. so it's just i like finding out about this but it's like for david for his little guy fighting against big guy. i think you can apply that to not just you can apply that anywhere in corporate america as well uh yeah just learning about this little government about that i think all three nations celebrate uh, a small basically uh, not only the river but also america and providing her providing the mowing if you like title yeah definitely um i think the you mentioned columbus i think that's a good maybe a good segue um into the other sort of topic that we had discussed about possibly um exploring on this episode but um maybe before then we can go ahead and take another break um and listen to some more music and then we'll come back and uh touch on uh thanksgiving and uh or as some of my friends and myself refer to sometimes thanks taking but uh here's a bit of music for everybody and Me mato también 
You're listening to Pueblo y Salud, Platicando y Mejorando, an inspiring program that will promote the health and well-being of our community through intellectual, physical, economical, political, and spiritual discussions. Stimulating discussions and listening pleasures will be enjoyed with experts and leaders in health, culture, music, art, and politics. This is Silverio Pelayo. And this is Cynthia Alvarez. Um, so right before we get into a whole other topic that we're going to talk about, giving or as Silverio calls it, Thanksgiving, uh, a little bit more on kind of like the segregation that we're still facing. Um, the New York Times earlier this year they did a article where they actually promote six activities for students to investigate social segregation and educational inequality. Uh, this is really useful just in case everyone has any youth programs or if you're a teacher and you want to just think about um, again, the segregation and educational inequality other people have a face or you're, that your students may be facing. Um, I'm going to quote this sentence because I really like it. It basically says, the nexus of racial and economic segregation has intensified educational gaps between rich and poor students and the between white students and students of color. Um, so it's a really, really good uh, article. Again, six activities. Um, my favorite one is the first activity that they list where you can actually visualize segregation and inequality in education. So what it is, it's basically a map of the United States of America and ProPublic, um, the nonprofit news organization ProPublica built an interactive database to examine uh, racial disparities in educational opportunities and school discipline across the United States. They got this information based off from civil rights data released by the United States Department of Education. They had on there, so on there, it's a really nice map. You can like click on it. It tells you um, if you want to compare whites to the African-American community or to the Hispanic community. And they will also tell you whether you want to compare it in regards to opportunity or versus discipline. Um, and then just real quick, uh, ProPublica, the way they describe opportunity, it's white students are this number of times as likely to be in AP classes compared compared to either blacks or Hispanic students. Um, the discipline they talk about are Hispanic or black students um, are this number of times as likely to be suspended compared with the white student. Um, so in California, and then they have a, a list. In California, they list as 1.8 times opportunity. That means in California, white students are 1.8 times as likely to be uh, in AP classes compared to black students. Where also discipline-wise, they say uh, California is 3.4 times likely, so black students are 3.4 times as likely to be suspended compared with the white student. So it's, they have a chart you can check out. I did um, the highest opportunity in the nation that they have listed. So for South Carolina is the state that has the highest opportunity. So that means um, it's 3.2. So that means that students in South Carolina, are three point, white students are three point times more likely to be in AP classes compared to the black um, the black peers. Um, interestingly enough, also highest discipline in the nation is Washington DC at 11.7 times percent. So again, that means that black uh, students are 11.7 times more likely to be suspended than their white uh, counterparts as well. Date-wise, it's Wisconsin with discipline at about 7.5 times. I just think those numbers are really shocking and alarming. Um, I think it's interesting also to note that there's not one state that has the exact same, um, not the highest in opportunity and in discipline as well. Um, so just to further go on about the, the ProPublica um, little map that they have there you can click on it and it'll just show you again like in color wise you can also at the top it has an option for you to search a specific school or a school district um so what i did is i actually searched up the school district that i went to back um, in high school and then from there i clicked on the school that i attended um, i don't feel like calling them out yet so i'll keep that information 
private, but it's about a little bit of stats, a little bit over 2,400 students uh, with 90 teachers. Um, and it's 40, the population is 45% white, 45% Hispanic, and 2% black. Um, there's a 5% Asian, Pacific Islander, and Native Hawaiian population. And then there is a 3% of two or more races um, at, that, at my high school. Um, also at the top, which I think is really, really cool and interesting, you can compare the school you're looking at with other schools. So it has three options. You can compare the school to nearby schools, like location-wise. You can compare the school to other schools with higher and lower poverty rates. And you can compare the school to other schools with fewer or more non-white students. So you can kind of play around with it, and it's a really interesting just to look at maybe your high school or the district you attended, um, to see how it was. Um, again, school composition was 45% white and 45% Hispanic, and I'm going to be specifically looking at these um, percentages because that just means it's basically almost the exact same amount of whites versus Hispanics. Um, Opportunity-wise, I scrolled down a little bit, and I found that 55% of the population taking AP courses are white, even though the school is half technically half white and half Hispanic, and only 28% of the Hispanic population is actually taking an AP course as well. Um, I know I mentioned also the black population was about was a really low number, about 2%. Only 1% of the um, students taking AP courses identify as black. So I just, again, goes back to opportunity and what advanced courses um, specialized staff members are available for students at the school. Um, so the opportunity in general that Republica rated the school as had a 2.1. That means white students are 2.1 times as likely to be enrolled in at least one AP class as black students. White students are two times as likely to be enrolled in at least one AP class as Hispanic students. Discipline-wise, Hispanic students are 2.6 times likely to be suspended as white students. Um, again, this is really disproportionate because the white population and the Hispanic population is almost exactly equal at 45% making up the student. Mm. And then they also break it down into student-wise. So about 30% of the students are taking an AP course overall. Um, and it has a pretty high uh, graduation rate at 95%. And then you go and then they talk about discipline as well. So these numbers are pretty shocking again because I keep saying it's 45, made up 45, 95%. Um, so out of school suspension, none of those are made up by the black population. As 26% of the people suspended are white. And then really, really 68% of those who are said are from the Hispanic population. So again, disproportionate once more. And then you go into expulsion. Where again, the black population was only 2% black. They make up 13% of the expulsions in this specific school. This isn't the district or statewide. This is just one school with about 2,400 students. 27% um, of those that were, um, were white. 60% are Hispanic. Um, shocking number because again, I keep going back to how we're supposed to be equal. But these numbers are obviously not showing the way that they're equal. I don't know if it's because of the way the district forces or, or maybe is a little bit more lenient towards the white population. They kind of have that bias. Um, compared to the Hispanic population or the black population. I think, yes, even though Hispanic has a high Hispanic or high expulsion rate, I just keep going back to like the black percentage, which is 13%, because they make such a small, make up such a small number of the student population at this specific school, but it's 13% for them, because I just, it's just shocking how that actually happened. Um, and then they do also provide more information on students, and then also they, the ProPublica also published total days missed out of school suspension, and that's about 195 compared to the dual district, which is about 91 into the state where it's about 75.1 so this specific school has way more days missed due to suspension compared to the rest of the district and the state and again the suspension rate next was 68 where whites suspended 26 the population 26 percent and then there was about at this school it was tied with the school district as well there was 20 total referrals to law enforcement whereas the state only has an average of about 2.9 referrals so it's almost like they instead of dealing with it head-on and disciplining students with um education they said to go with more getting them out of the classroom and then leading them to law enforcement when they talk about the school to prison pipeline. I thought those numbers were pretty 
shocking. Um, and again, they got their information from the U.S. Department of Education. Um, yeah, when you were um, discussing AP courses, I thought about um, my experience in, uh, this was in, I believe this was middle school, like middle school. And at the time, I was living in Orange County. And um, I remember being put in this remedial English class. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, it seemed like I was the only one in this class. And um, um, after now, uh, thinking about it, I wonder if they just like saw my name, yeah. um, right? My name is Silverio and it's, you know, um, and I, I wonder if they just saw my name and they're like, oh, he must belong in this remedial class. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember meeting with, uh, I don't remember if she was like who this lady was in particular, but I remember her kind of like questioning that decision. And then she had me read uh, from a book or something. And she's like essentially saying like, oh, you don't belong in this class. Um, and so um, it's um, it's just interesting. I wonder how many other kids in my similar position have gone through that. Right. And who could have and who probably were steered uh, in a different direction, you know, just based solely on maybe their name or, or assumptions or, um, you know, things of that nature. But, um, yeah, there's so much there um, to unpack as far as it relates to opportunities in the school system and um, the way youth are treated and in particular the way that um, well one is the way youth are treated and then also in general terms but also then in the specifics of when you start getting into income or you know social class and race um, which adds another dimension but um, it was uh, you know we we've been working on the um, vaping and, and or flavored tobacco uh, to be more um, broader but uh, I was thinking about the Burbank, uh, the reading of the flavored tobacco ban in Burbank, and I'm sitting there and um, during this this reading and how and really just thinking about the deeper implications of the work that we're doing, um, specifically uh, the flavored tobacco and, and how it's obviously you know we've seen the numbers. There's tons of youth that are um, that are using these products, and um, it's just to me uh, if you were to judge a country right on on how well um the health of a country i i can't help but think to look at how a country treats its first its women and how a country treats its youth um um you can say that women and and young folks are um, essentially um what guarantees the continual existence right of our of our of our peoples of of our institutions and such right because young people are young and then they're going to grow up and then move forward right Mm -hmm. uh the culture and and then obviously our our women are the ones that um give birth to these young people and so um when you have a country that allows for in this case manufacturers and corporations to create products that uh in many cases direct market to young people and now we're seeing you know high levels of addiction and now even deaths and, and then women when you have a country that doesn't value women right whether we're talking about the income inequality gap um just even right the right to vote um, um the continual murder and disappearance of native women and in, in uh, different parts of the country um uh, you know we can go on and on but anyway um it's just very um telling um that there's something fundamentally rotten right. in, in the in the core of, of the country when it treats its women and young people in that way um anyway um i think um is there anything else that, uh, that you wanted to touch on well i just how you brought up um your experience yeah um also 
when I went to this school, it was freshman year, so it was ninth grade. Um, they had AP environmental science, and I was the only Hispanic person in there. I was surrounded by, it, and I remember they were going over um, weather patterns and stuff, and we were reviewing for the upcoming AP test because that was what was pushed upon us. Um, and I just had a momentary lapse. I was like, you know, we were discussing weather patterns, um, and they didn't know if, it, of course, if it was going to be on the test or not. So the theme of um, El Niño and La Niña came up. So I raised my hand, and I was like, oh, you know, Mr. I won't say his name, but I, I addressed him and I said, I just have a quick question for the review. We're going over the weather aspect, but uh, we didn't cover the topics of El Niño and La Niña. What's the difference? And everyone turned around at me and like looked at me and he's like, sorry, I couldn't understand what you were saying. Like El Niño and La Niña. So he's like, I'm sorry, what? I'm like, and I had to say it, in, you know, a quote unquote white accent for him to understand what they were saying. And um, the kid to my right, or he was saying, um, he had a Hispanic last name, but it was um, identified as white because it was, it was like a generation according to him, but he still liked to identify with the Hispanic side, but not really. He looked over him and he said, you know, the reason he didn't understand you is because you said it so well and in the way it's supposed to be pronounced, he didn't understand your accent. So I was like, oh, I didn't even realize until he said so. Um, so, and then he was sitting to my right because then there was like a senior guy that was sitting behind me and he was like a football player and he said something like really racist and stuff. And because I was always quiet in that class, I didn't say anything. I turned around and I looked at him and I was like, really, you just said that? And I turned back around and my friend that was sitting to the right and the guy behind him they were also in the football team with him i mean they were like varsity players and then they were like dude you should apologize that was really and the guy was like no i'm not gonna apologize i said nothing wrong so i mean those numbers like just kind of show a little bit of some of the racism that's still going on in schools and we still see it um i don't think i really ever had a hispanic or latino um, teacher until college because again it's mostly like i said there's about 90 teachers according to ProPublica, but most of them were either white um or just not from the hispanic or latino background and it just goes back to representation matters in schools and i just think it's really important for students to see people um that look like them teaching these topics as well because then that way it shows them that they can go to college um they can do this they can overcome whatever obstacles come their way and they can still learn and help others be educated about this maybe go on beyond the educational field and become like engineers or even like astronauts whatever they aspire to be but i just think there's a lack of representation right now um in a lot of these school districts and a lot of these schools um again i didn't grow up in san fernando but i think just working within the valley and the community right now i'm starting to see a lot more representation which makes me glad that there's that kids have access to these people and that actually care about what they're learning instead of just the teachers going and not teaching really more um reading off of a powerpoint i feel like these teachers now that are in it are actually a little bit more passionate that we get to know a little bit more when we're out in the field um and when they reach out to us asking us for our opinion on like, vaping and stuff or on secondhand smoke exposure which we're also working on um and again it goes back to more education because a lot of these students are coming from backgrounds where their parents didn't go to school if they're first or second generation immigrants um they may be even if they're only in high school they already may have a higher education than their parents. so again it goes back to how you brought up socioeconomic status um because a lot of these parents when we go to the schools they don't even know what an e-cigarette looks like or if they know they know maybe only one style or one design they don't they only know about jewel they don't know about mods or like disposable aspects um and i I feel like it's because of like some of the influence some of the kids may lie to their parents and tell them oh you know it's cool i know we had that when we did a presentation we had a parent say um yeah my best friend she actually just bought one for her son because he told her it was gonna be um a pouch a pencil pouch or it was gonna go in her pencil pouch she was so when we saw the picture she was really uh, intrigued because the mom was like oh yeah i already bought one for my child and she's like no that's an e-cigarette she had to go back and educate a friend and tell her that's an e-cigarette so they could take it away um and it just comes all back into almost another more
more how should i say like some of the priorities or some of the ways that hispanic culture kind of comes together and helps educate i um instead of edu instead of like going to school and stuff because they may not have those opportunities they educate more just by like um platicando and like talking so like if you stuck your comadre down the street you can be like oh well you know i went to so-and-so school and they taught me about this and then you start discussing it though so, um i think going and out educating outreaching is a great way to educate people but then also just um it's important to keep in mind that it basically all starts with the education and the representation we see back inside the schools and the school districts as well um even in some of the schools that we visited here when we presented i've noticed that they have a predominantly hispanic population but the principal and their assistant principal are white or um they are not of the hispanic population you know not saying anything against anyone but just recognizing that representation does matter and that's one of the things that we uh, teach our students yeah definitely um i think we all take a break and listen to some more music and uh we'll continue the conversation uh, in a bit you're listening to pueblo y salud platicando y mejorando an inspiring program that will promote the health and well-being of our community through intellectual physical economical political and spiritual discussions stimulating discussions and listening pleasures will be enjoyed with experts and leaders in health culture music art and politics and this is silverio pelayo and this is Cynthia. yeah so um again just a recap uh, we've touched on a couple different things. Um, we uh, touched on desegregation uh, in the school system with the Mendez um, um, Mendez trial and the uh, some of the associated trials, and we went on to discuss also um, inequality in general. And um, um, now we kind of mentioned briefly also uh, Columbus and um, Thanksgiving as opposed to Thanksgiving. And of course, we're gearing up now for Black Friday, which is another topic, but um, uh, maybe we can leave for uh, another episode um, where we talk about consumerism and, and uh, some of the associated uh, issues with that. But um, I think that's it for, for us this episode. Um, thank you, Cynthia, for taking a bulk of, the, bulk of the research for this episode. Up next, we have Latin Hero Hour with Leo Salazar. Stay tuned. <laughs> 